You're listening to A Not-So-Private Practice, and we are your hosts, Steph and Laura. Consider this your backstage pass to all the weird and wonderful things that happen behind the curtain of group practice ownership. Last week, we talked to Amanda, one of our long-term independent contractors, about her experience working in a group practice. And today, we thought we'd kind of like round that out a little bit with some more of the details, or the bits and bobs, as, as we, we like, like to, to call, call them, them. <laughs> <laughs> of our independent contractor model. And, you know, to me, the funniest part of our model is like how overly and unnecessarily complicated we've made the like office fees portion. portion. Yeah. Well, it's real complicated for us to keep track of, but I think what's even more tricky is like making sure that everyone gets to the right office on the right day. Yeah. It's kind of like a flash mob. <laughs> Say more. Well, we've got seven offices, lots of clinicians. So everyone shows up and it's seemingly disorganized, like a bunch of pedestrians going in different directions on the street. And then at some point, the music hits and there is this sort of coordinated, orchestrated effort where everybody does eventually end up where they're supposed to be. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Why don't we tell them more about it today? Great. Let's get into it. All right, so let's get into some of the more finer details or bits and bobs, as we like to call them, of our model with independent contractors. What we had come from in our previous practice was a commission plus rent model as well. It was uh, 23%. And essentially in that business, people owned their offices, meaning you rented your office. It was full-time, your office, seven days a week, all hours of the day. And so it was nice to have ownership over space. But I know that you and I observed how often the offices were empty, which meant that as a business, they were losing out on a lot of opportunities to make money. They were sort of capping out their profitability based on how many hours a clinician could reasonably work in their full-time office in a week. Yeah. And so we kind of knew that when we started looking at how we wanted to structure our model and you know, knowing that we had some clinicians who wanted to come and work with us and the limitation of space that we had, you know, that it was important for us to come up with a creative way to be able to maximize those office hours yeah, so we could get more clinicians in the office, but also so we could get more clients in there. Yeah, exactly. And what we saw happen at the other practice was because their ability to make profit was so limited, they tried to increase their profitability by reducing what they were offering. Yeah, like we would pay this 23% and, you know, at one point it covered, you know, all the things that we could have needed and then it stopped covering, you know, paper and Kleenex. Right. There's like a printing fee or limits on vacation days, things like that. Ways to try to get clinicians to work more within the model. And so it felt often like the epitome of being micromanaged. And I know you and I don't want that to be the energy of our practice. Yeah, I mean, we've talked to... feel micromanaged. Totally. And we've talked a lot about this idea of like wanting our group practice to have all the benefits of being a solo private right. practitioner, right. you know. And so for us, it's it's really about, you know, being as generous as we can with our contractors to create a model that allows them the like autonomy and flexibility mm-hmm. to, you know, get all the perks of being in private practice, but also maximizes our profitability. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let's talk a little more about the model that we chose. 
We did go with a hybrid model, a commission plus office fees. Some practices out there, I think the most common model is to go commission only. It's very common to find a 30-70 split or a 40-60 split. I've heard of some that do a rent-only model, so they charge a heftier fee per hour, but there's no commission. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of times those models are based on practices that have been built. The rent-only model particularly, I think, is based more on practices that have been built as like a collective where everybody contributes then, you know, a certain amount of dollars monthly to shared costs, if there are any. Yeah. But generally, there's not as many shared costs, potentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so our office fee model, we split the day into two blocks, a morning block that runs from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. and an afternoon evening block that runs from 3 p.m. to 9 p.m. And essentially clinicians, they pick the schedule that they want. So they might have a couple morning blocks and a couple afternoon blocks in a week. And we have intentionally left the 2 to 3 p.m. hour open. We call it community hour. It is mandatory. (laughs) Yes, it is mandatory. Often if people book a client in the community hour, one of us goes up to them and says, hey, what time's that client that you're seeing today? Or we leave a passive aggressive note in there calendar. Yeah. We thought this was community Community hour, hour. question mark. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, jokes aside, I think it's one of the best things we did. Yeah. It's very, very rare that people book clients in that time. And usually if they do, it's because there's been some kind of crisis or last minute change that has kind of necessitated it. But Um, that two to three hour, it is the most organic community building thing that happens in our office, people hang out, they go for lunch, they go for walks. There's a crossover between our morning clinicians and our afternoon clinicians. Yeah. And uh, that's where you and I, it's unfacilitated connection time. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And, you know, the feedback from the clinicians is that they love it because you don't have to worry so much about coordinating your schedules. I don't know if you remember when we used to work in our old practice, the amount of like days in advance that we would have to book time together because we were so booked and there was never built in time that it took us a long time before we were like, okay, yeah, like last Thursday of the month, I'll see you from 1230 to one. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So this helps us out too. But I think also it just helps, you know, people to know that there's just like, oh, there's space where I'm going to be able to connect with so-and-so if I need to. Or Or reach Steph and Laura. Like that is where you and I meet. That's where if we need to meet with clinicians, people know they can access us between 2 and 3 p.m. Every day. Yeah. Every weekday. Yeah. So we have built a ridiculously complicated rental model (laughs) in our office. We'll just give you a little glimpse of it. So we have seven offices. Every office is broken into two blocks of time. Each block of time is priced differently based on the size of the office, whether it has a window to the inside or a window to the outside what day of the week it is. We try to accommodate things like Mondays are often stats. And so those clinicians shouldn't have to pay as much because they're probably going to take those days off, et cetera, et cetera. It was this idea of wanting people to feel like they had some choice around what kind of office and were fairly charged for the office they were accessing. But what's resulted is this, we have this really incredible Grid. My favorite Google (laughs) document that we have internally. It's like, I don't know, 10 by 10. This grid. Brightly colored chart that documents all seven offices and who is in which office in which block of which day. Yeah. And now that it's full, every single block is full. 
it's just pretty. It's, it's it really is so pretty. satisfying. It's like, imagine <laughs> putting the last few pieces of the puzzle in. When every block is full, we just breathe a sigh of yeah. relief and then, you know, start talking about expansion. Yes, of, yeah, course. of <laughs> course. Right. Because then we're like, where are we going to put all these people? You know, yeah. and so when we opened, you know, we had a few clinicians that came with us. And, you know, for them, it was like sort of ideal. We had come up with this overly complicated model that we were totally convinced was going to impact our profitability. More on that later. Yeah. You know, and we sort of said to our earliest clinicians, like, you pick your office, you pick your days. Mm -hmm. And, you know, based on what you pick, you'll sort of like be building your own office fees kind of package. Right. And some clinicians, they're like, I want the most spacious office. I want it at my preferred times. I want consistency, which I kind of thought is what everyone would do. But other clinicians are like, I want the cheapest office every day of the week, which often means a different office. Yeah, I think every of, day of the week. Right, I think of one of our clinicians who comes in four different blocks during the week and works out of four different offices right. and they're just not phased by that because they feel great about the fact that they have like the lowest office fees that they could possibly yeah. find. You know, but the landscape has changed a little now that it's mm-hmm. gotten tighter in there. You know, autonomy for clinicians around like picking their blocks has become like a little more reduced because there's actually just so few blocks, if any, available. Yeah. 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 And so our newest therapists often are left with no choice. Yeah. Sorry, new therapist who has to work Thursday night in the biggest office with windows. The most expensive office fees. (laughs) Enjoy your giant window. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) You know, but the truth is, is that when we set this up, we were looking at how we could maximize our profitability by filling each one of these offices every day. And we imagined that one day all of these offices were going to be full Mm -hmm. and we would just like pat ourselves on the back and be like, we are making the best deal in town here. We are like so profitable. That's what we imagined. That's what we imagined. Turns out though. Yes. As you heard from Amanda, the ICs all feel that they actually are the ones with the best deal in town. Yeah. And I think a part of that on our end is that like what we've learned painfully as we've grown this practice, is that as the clinic grows, the expenses grow. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've done a lot of reading on this over the last little while, and it just seems to be the nature of business. It's like the bigger you get, the more expenses you have. And so it looked real good five years ago when we looked at this grid and imagined all of these office blocks being full. Yeah, how much we would be making if people were renting every block. We just couldn't conceptualize at that point what it would be costing to run a practice of that size. Right. I I remember maybe in our second year, I listened to a podcast and it was one of the most helpful and relieving bits of information that I had heard at that time. We were finding this essentially as our profits grew. So did our expenses. And I had been under the impression that there's some kind of sweet spot, you know, like once we get all those offices rented out or once we take on our 15th clinician, then we're going to hit that sweet spot and we're going to see this sort of sweet cash flow start to come in. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I listened to this podcast episode in which the group practice owner was saying, you know, essentially this is the nature of business that costs grow with profits. And there's very rarely a sweet spot. And if there is, usually the margins on it close pretty tightly as soon as people discover what it is. And so, yeah, typically, no matter what size you're at, your expenses are going to be pretty close to your profits. And so don't try to chase the elusive sweet spot. Just choose the size of practice you want to run and do that. Yeah. Yeah. Which I found very relieving at the time. I was like, what are we doing wrong here? Totally. That, That cash is not 
blowing in yeah, the way we, we thought it would Yeah, we size. really couldn't conceptualize it. And, you know, I think having that piece of advice and and starting to think about it a little bit differently, it's helped with a lot of our angst. Yes. Yeah. You know? I mean, as much as we look down on the micromanaging that we came from, I know that it's very tempting sometimes. Totally. Like when we get to the end of the month and the expenses are so close to the profits, that's when you and I are the most tempted to micromanage. Totally. I think like when we get into that state at the end of the month, when we are looking at our profits and our expenses and, you know, clinicians come to us wanting things, time yeah. off or yeah. toys for kids or they see their calendar or we start to see their calendars are dwindling. Yeah. We spend essentially like, you know, the last two days of the month, first two days of the month, brainstorming about all the ways that we can increase our profitability. Yeah. Let's yeah. raise their rent. Yeah. Let's raise their commission. Let's yeah. like, we're looking at our budget and we just like lose the plot. Yeah. Like the thing we want to do the most is like, yeah. try to just like, I know. Can we get rid of the water? Yeah. You know? Like who needs Stop water? Stop buying this coffee cream. Yeah. That's right. Drink from the tap. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I mean, you and I have not enough time together. And Typically from the first to the third of the month, we mire ourselves in this totally. micromanagey like fog of how we're going to charge more or pay less. Totally. And we always yeah. land in this place where we're like, oh, they're so grateful to have us. Yeah, they're so lucky, yeah. those clinicians, to have us. Yeah. And then, you know, the fourth runs up, comes around, the fourth, fifth of the month. And from, you know, about the fourth or fifth until the end of the month, when we're not in that state and we see people's calendars are flowing mm -hmm. and we're not, you know, paying all the bills. We think, oh, gosh, we're so grateful we have them all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you and I, I mean, we come up with a lot of different ideas for increasing profit when we feel the crunch of the end of the month. You know, things like, can we raise the office fees, for example? You know, I've come back to that, that conversation several times. But what I appreciate about us is we usually check each other. Yeah. So if we're there, but we can feel that it's this conversation is being driven by this angst or discomfort, I think it's fair to say that you and I never make decisions out of angst. We talk about making decisions totally. out of angst. We make we're, them in our mind. Yes, we're tempted <laughs> to. We talk about why we should have a right to make those decisions. But I think at the end of the day, if either of us tries to proceed, one or the other will be like, no, no, like this doesn't feel right. This is not the right motivation yeah. to make a choice like this. And so we uh, sort of force ourselves to pause on that and give ourselves time to think about it more because I think it's not, we just know that's not the, uh, that's not the way we want to make leadership decisions. We don't want to make leadership decisions out of angst yeah. or out of fear or out of some kind of resentment or entitlement. And, you know, and I don't mean to make it sound easy. It's not. Like, I think yeah. it's very tempting as owners when you feel the margins closing in and the buck stops with you yeah. and your family and your personal finances. It's very tempting to sort of say, I have to do something here. Totally. I have got to do something to make this work. And yes, but you and I are sort of like, but not out of angst. Right. Like, let's find a way to approach this that is more aligned with our values and the culture that yeah. we're trying to create here. Yeah. And so I think about Amanda's conversation with us last week. And it's interesting to me that, you know, there are moments where we feel we have the best deal in town. Totally. And then the contractors also feel 
like they have the best deal in town. Like when I hear that, it makes me laugh. But I also think, huh, like something's going right here if everybody's feeling like they've got the best deal in town. Totally. I mean, and I think it's so aligned with this like value of generosity, you know, for better or worse. It's like a thing that has kind of like lives at the foundation of, you know, what we've built. And I think when everybody feels like they're getting the best deal in town, everybody is contributing. Everybody cares. There's a sense of loyalty that like, you know, you can't buy with like good Christmas presents or, you know, nights out at restaurants. Yeah. I think about you saying, uh, I've heard you say how long a leash they give us, meaning when we make mistakes, when we are unclear, when we are bumbly in our leadership, or we just realize we've missed something entirely. Clinicians are unbelievably gracious with us about those things. I think about one, one of our other long-term independent contractors, you know, one of our busiest, you know, mm. works the most, sees the most complex clients. Has been with us for right from the has beginning. Been, has been with us, yeah, since the very yeah. beginning. Early on, when they moved into their office, they had asked us if they could put some, like, floating shelves on the wall. Yeah. Uh, you know, to have a little bit more storage. And, and you know, we said, yeah, of course, we're, we'll take care of it. Like, yeah. you know, our kind of model is based on us providing everything that they could possibly need in order to be able to do their work well. And so we said, we're on it. Yeah. And then the weeks went by, yeah. and the weeks went by, and she asked again. It was like very graciously. Yeah, totally Gave us, kind. you know, eight weeks, and I was like, hey. Totally. Just wondering about those shelves. Totally, yeah. totally. And then we found ourselves in, like, the middle of COVID, and yeah. finding shelves from Ikea was, like, near impossible. Yeah. And, you know, she she just continued to offer us so much grace. And I, I, I think it took us almost a year I to get those shelves up. I think it took us a year. Up, yeah. yeah, and yeah. several emails from her reasonable emails totally. reminding us and we it was always like totally it's a yes you yeah. know we'll get to it yeah but it was we were kind of operating i think a little more in terms of what was most urgent totally and that was not urgent in our minds but the consequence of this contractor having to wait a year for yeah. shelves felt awful yeah yeah it felt awful and you know there was so much relational equity between yes. us that you know, when the shelves went up, she was so kind and yeah. appreciative, you know. And then you, and then I think about fast forwarding three years later, this same clinician comes to us and says she wants to take two and a half months to go and travel and do this important thing that she needs to do for herself. Right. And, you know, is there a way that we can accommodate that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first thing we said was go, of course. Yeah. And don't worry gonna, about your office. Don't worry about your we office. We got it. Piece. Yeah. We got it. Yeah. You know, and it's just like money in the relational bank. Exactly. Yeah. And I and I think we do it because we just, it just feels right yeah. to us and it benefits us. You yeah. know, the more, I, I love this term we're using, like the more relational equity we build up with our clinicians, yeah. the more, you know, if we unintentionally have to take a debit from that account, there's space. Yeah. And we feel, I mean, I often feel surprised by how gracious they yeah, are. How, how understanding and patient yeah, yeah, for sure. they are with us. But when I think about it this way, it's like, yeah, when you're sort of constantly operating out of a spirit of generosity, like, of course, I don't mind because you've offered so much and vice versa. It gives us so much leeway or a long leash. Yeah. As yeah. I've heard you say. Yeah. I mean, I think about it. I've been I've been reading a lot of sort of the like contemporary organizational leadership stuff lately. And, you know, I'm thinking about Simon Sinek's work on the mm. infinite mindset. You yeah. know, that this is like such a ideal, I think, that we held prior to having like language to put to it. Yeah. You know, and 
getting to that place can sometimes be tricky for us. Yeah, it's at least our like forward facing idea. Totally, There's totally. It takes some less wrestling mature. sometimes yeah. to get there. But this yeah. idea yeah. that like, you know, there isn't like a winning to this game. Right. Right. That like the more generous and open that we can be as leaders, mm-hmm. the more of this relational equity that yeah. we build. Yeah, and it's like there aren't only a set number of pieces of the pie, you know, yeah. and how many do we take? What are we owed as owners? Right. And how many are you owed? It's like, oh, there's, oh, it's a good metaphor, but it's like, there's infinite pie. Yeah. You know, yeah. everybody, there's more and more and more pie yeah. for whoever's hungry. Yeah, I mean, and I think it's sort of what's brought us here in some ways too. You know, I think about all the group practice owners that are in our circle that are listening to this. Everybody is, you know, trying to build their businesses and be successful and launch their programs. And, you know, a part of what brought us here was just like, oh, we know how to do this. Mm. We think we've done it decently well. We've sure learned a lot of things that people who have yet to walk this journey in this way have would have learned yet. And, you know, it doesn't harm us to share it with you. Yeah. I don't, I don't know about you, but I do a lot of, I'm, we're both somatically trained. And so one of the ways I could be more specific about how we do this is I kind of recognize the signals in my body when I'm making decisions out of fear. Yeah. Or what's another word we've been Competition. Using yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or a competitive, non-infinite <laughs> mindset. There's sort of this familiar, like tight, squeezed, yeah. anxious energy yeah. in my chest. And um, my mind can easily justify it. I have a thousand and one reasons why it's a reasonable thing to do. But if I get that sort of squeeze sensation, it's an immediate indication to me that, okay, no, this is not how I make choices. This is not how we make choices. We wait until those moments where there's sort of a sense of steady, grounded clearing in our bodies. Like the what what I would call the feeling of knowing it's right. Yeah. Which for me is sort of this like my energy goes down, it drops, I feel a bit more heavy in my seat. And there's sort of a like resonance, like my heart's like, yeah, Yeah. this feels right. Yeah. And each person, of course, is going to have their own unique sensation of right. But that is the strongest indicator indicator to me, uh, whether we're on the path or not. If we both have a sense of like, it's right. And sometimes it's like, it's right. And sometimes it's like, oh, it's right. (laughs) (laughs) But if we both have that sense of rightness in our systems, then we go ahead. Yeah. If one or the other of us is like, I don't know, I'm getting a little tense or squeezed inside. You know, we we wait. hang on, we yeah. wait. Yeah, and just like not to, you know, beat a dead horse here, but, you know, to kind of just build off what Laura said earlier, it's like not an easy process, mm-hmm. you know, and I have a lot of compassion, you know, for those of you running a practice on your own, because I think that a huge benefit for us in being able to work through the like yucky, sticky muckiness as we move into that like more intuitive, open-hearted, knowing space is that we have each other to do that with. Yeah. You know, and that is like a real privilege and gift that we have that I recognize lots of people don't. Yeah, to be able to check each other is a very helpful part of the decision-making process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we've said a lot here Mm -hmm. in this episode. And if we were, you know, Laura, to kind of reduce it down into a couple of takeaways here, What do you think is like most important for people to walk away from this episode with? Yeah, I'm thinking about uh, this idea of generosity. And I think what that looks like for each group practice owner is going to be dependent on their values. So getting clear on your values and letting the spirit of generosity sort of flow from that. 
And then just knowing that there isn't a sweet spot, you know, so don't waste your energy chasing it or growing, thinking that you're going to land there. Just sort out what you want to do, what you love, what brings you the most joy and do that. Yeah. And then I think I would add, don't overcomplicate your rental model. Yeah. Great advice, Steph. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to A Not-So-Private Practice. Please be sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts and throw down a review if you are enjoying the show, as it helps other listeners find us. In real life, you can find Laura and Steph at www.anotsoprivatepractice.ca. A special thanks and shout out to Podfather Creative for producing and editing this episode. 